Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the blue one in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 1118, 1118 in the blue Bibles. If you're just joining us, we have been working our way through this book of 1 Peter. Um, We're not just jumping in here. We've been started at the beginning, and Lord willing, we'll see it all the way through. And today we find ourselves roughly halfway in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that last song we sang, Speak, O Lord, it talks about one of the things that I love so much about God's word. I love how the Bible as a whole, and and 1 Peter specifically, combine two powerful realities. I want you to think about two of these parts that you just sang. On one hand, we sang, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. So you've got these glorious, eternal truths. But then also this. Take your truth, plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. What I want you to hear and see is that God's word is filled with eternal, unchanging truths about his glorious plans for his people, and it's filled with instruction about how to let that eternal truth shape and fashion you today so that the light of Christ can be seen in how you and I live our day-to-day lives now. So God's word has both hope for eternity and help for today. And I hope that's what you've been noticing as we've been walking through 1 Peter. On one hand, through the precious blood of Christ, we've been ransomed from those worthless ways we inherited from our forefathers. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And through his resurrection, we've been born again into a living hope and to a new life. We have an eternal inheritance kept for us in heaven. We've been made part of God's people and his holy nation. 
We have new identities as sojourners and exiles in this world. And our hope is set fully on that grace that will be brought to us when King Jesus is revealed and he does return in power to reign. Those are glorious, eternal, big truths, right? But that's not all Peter tells us. He tells us not just that we are exiles, but how to live as exiles. He tells us what our lives should look like because we have that living hope. He doesn't just say, isn't that cool that you guys have that? He says, because you have that, here's what it looks like. So just to remind you, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he told us what it means. Is it means that we are to fight hard against the sin we see in our own hearts and to live beautiful lives among the unbelieving world we find ourselves in. And we've seen since then that a key part of living beautiful lives as exiles is to do two things. Is to persistently do good from a posture of submission. Persistently do good from a posture of submission. We are to fear God and commend the good news of the gospel by submitting to those who are in authority over us. So remember where we've been, because I want you to see we're, we're not just parachuting into a, a passage this morning. There's a context. So in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2, Peter showed us what that looked like in relationship to the government. Then in verses 18 to 25, last week we saw what it looks like between servants and masters. And today now, we come to how this persistence in doing good and posture of submission plays out in marriage. In other words, today's passage is about what does this beautiful life look like in marriage? Now, we know right off the bat that what Peter says here is radically out of step with our current culture. There's no denying that. But what we also need to see is that in many ways it was radically out of step with his culture as well. It's not like, oh, that made total sense to them, but nowadays that's not how it's done. It never made sense to the unbelieving world. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? After all, he's writing to exiles. He's writing to those people who belong to a different kingdom, with a different king, a different set of values and priorities, those whose lives ought to look different. Exiles look different from the land they find themselves in. So we shouldn't be surprised this morning that when it comes to exile marriages, things are no different. Now, we need to be clear up front. When we talk about what marriage is supposed to look like, we can look primarily to one of three places. We can take our cues from one of these three. We can look, you've heard me use this before, but you can look to traditions, you can look to trends, or you can look to truth. So some people, they'll base their views of what marriage ought to look like on the tradition of what they've seen or what they've experienced, either in their own lives or growing up or what their relatives or their neighbors. They look at the traditions. They say, well, that's where I think marriage ought to be or ought not to be. Other people take their cues from the trends of what culture is saying is right at the moment. So they look at what are people saying on social media about marriage or what is, what's shown on TV shows and in movies? What's being marketed in ads? Or what is the latest book, the trendy book on marriage? What does that have to say marriage should be? But we all know very well that both traditions and trends are unreliable guides. They come, they go, they have limited knowledge, and they don't account for the main reality of the universe, namely God. So rather than looking at traditions or trends, 
We want to get our understanding of what marriage should look like from the truth of God's word. Because marriage is God's idea and he designed marriage to be one of life's greatest joys and greatest delights. And he has good and kind purposes in it. And he's told us, like I said earlier, he's told us, he's shown us the way in marriage. He says, here's what a beautiful life looks like in marriage. So to understand marriage, we're going to go to the truth of God's word because we want to know his plan and we want to experience his pleasures in it. Now, lastly, before we jump in, let me remind you that this message matters for all of us here, whether you're married or not. So if you're here and you're single, you're divorced, or you're widowed, please do not tune out thinking, okay, I'll just take some, uh, I'll catch up on my to-do list and then next week I'll tune back in. Please do not do that. God's word is for you too, even here. In fact, let me give you four quick ways this text is for you, even if you're not married. It does four things for us. Number one, it tells you how to prepare. Some of you are here and aren't married, but you do hope to be one day. And if so, let me implore you, do not wait until you're married to learn about God's design for marriage. I mean, that's about as good of an idea as it is deciding when you're 30,000 feet in the air on an airplane, you think, you know, I'd really love to learn to fly. Right? That's not the time to learn to figure out what it means to fly an airplane. The same way, don't wait till you're already in marriage. It's going, you're 30,000 feet up into it and say, you know what, I should figure out what this marriage thing is really all about. Instead, ask God to prepare you to be the kind of man or woman that we see in the scripture in marriage. Second, this text helps you know how to pray. It can help you learn how to pray both for your own marriage and for others. Once we see that mar what marriage is supposed to look like, we can better pray when we start to see areas, ah, my marriage is just a little out of alignment there. Or, hey, let me help you. Have you ever, can I pray for you in this area? Which leads right into the third thing it helps. It helps, helps us know how we can partner together. Because if you're a member of the church, we are concerned not just for our own marriages, but we should care about all marriages in our family. We all need to know God's design so we know how to partner together to see marriages in our church flourish. We want to encourage and celebrate and help marriages thrive any way we can. We want to be pro, pro, pro marriage here. So don't just listen this morning for the good of your marriage. Listen for the good of other marriages in the church. And then finally, another way it's helpful is it shows us how to participate. What I mean is that even if you never get married in this life, I'm not, I'm not presuming that everyone in this room will get married, but even if you never do, all Christians need to understand God's design for marriage because it points us to our participation in the true marriage of Christ and his church. And if we don't understand how marriage works, we will miss out on one of God's greatest teaching tools about our relationship with Jesus. So if you're here, doesn't matter your marital status, God's word is for you this morning. So our outline, on one hand, is very simple. I'll fill it out a little bit, but I think we have a slide. There you go. On one hand, it's just wives and husbands. But now within that, I think Peter's showing us some things. So under wives in verses 1 to 2, we'll see the influence of submission. In 3 to 4, we'll see the beauty of submission. And then in five to six, we'll see examples of submission. 
And then husbands, it's all in verse 7. But the two main things I think he wants us to see is husbands, know your wife and honor your wife. Okay, so that's, that's a road map to let you know where we're going. So let's jump in and look first at what Peter says to wives. Look back at verse 1 with me. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, let's just be honest with each other. Submission is not the world's most popular word today. If that's news to you, then I'm, I'm sorry, but it's, it's not. And now it's especially true when it comes to marriage. I mean, I think if you said submission in general, people are like, oh, that's like a dirty word. Like, that's what, you have to filter that out on some things. But now I think that's largely because biblical submission is horribly misunderstood. So that what many people don't like in our world today isn't in fact submission at all, but something else altogether. So we need to be sure this morning that we understand what submission really is. But we also need to understand what submission is for another reason. Because whatever our initial response might be to the concept, love it, hate it, somewhere between, whatever our response to the concept, one thing we cannot escape is the fact that it's right there in our Bibles. It's right here in 1 Peter 3. And it's not just here. We find it several places in our Bible. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And Titus 2.5 says, Older women are to train the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what I want us to realize right off the bat is that while the idea of wives submitting to their husbands may not be popular in the world, it's pervasive in the Bible. And if we want to be people who take God's word seriously, we can't simply brush it away and say, oh, that's, that's for another time and place. I, I don't really get it. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. We cannot do that. Instead, we need to hear God's word, we need to understand God's word, and then we need to obey God's word. We need to let God's word shape and fashion us, like we just sang. So as we get started here, let me, let me set the stage by telling you a few things submission is not. Okay? First of all, submission is not inequality. It is not inequality. Husbands and wives have equal value but different roles. The same word for submission is used in the Bible to say that Jesus submitted to the Father and that Jesus submitted to his parents here on earth. So unless we're willing to say that Jesus is less valuable than the Father, or what's more, that Jesus is less valuable than Joseph and Mary, submission simply cannot mean having less value. Okay, so it is not inequality. Second, submission is not inferiority. Wives are not called to submit here or anywhere in the Bible because they are less intelligent or less spiritually mature. In fact, here in our passage, these wives in particular would have had more spiritual knowledge and more spiritual maturity because their husbands, it says, are unbelievers. So like they are clearly they know more. They have better insight into the ways of the world because God has opened their eyes to see the light of the gospel. 
And they're clearly more mature because their, their husbands aren't even believers. So what we see is that God's call for wives to submit is not based on who's more qualified to lead. It's based on who God created to lead in this gospel drama of marriage. That's the second thing. Third, submission here does not mean that the wife is, is mindless or can't think for herself or that even that she can't disagree with her husband. Again, notice that Peter is talking to Christian wives whose husbands don't obey the word of the gospel. So, therefore, the wife clearly disagrees with her husband on what is most important. She disagrees with him on his religious views. And so when Peter says be subject, he's not simply telling the wives, just adopt and follow your husband's religious views, whatever they may be. And you need to know that this would have been radically different from that culture. Like today we think like the world would say, yeah, anybody can believe anything in marriage. It doesn't matter. You can, you can have a Hindu married to a Muslim or you can have a Buddhist married to a Catholic. It doesn't matter what. But in this day, here's what a historian wrote about this time. He said, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. And the gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. That's the prevailing culture into which this was written. Instead, Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not what it looks like. He expects the wife to worship the true God alone. You see that in verse 2, he talks about the wife's respectful conduct. Do you see that word there? Well, if you remember, just like last week in chapter 2, verse 18, we had that word respect. And just like there, the word is fear. And just like last week, it does not mean that she is to fear her husband. Instead, she is to fear God. So the same reason that she is to submit to her husband is the same reason she must not mindlessly accept his religious views. Because she fears the Lord. This submission does not mean Whatever your, whatever your husband says, goes. Instead, what it means is, whatever Jesus says, goes. Fourth, submission does not mean following your husband into sin. When God's word and a husband's word don't line up, wives should always submit to God's word. And we see that in verse 2 as well. When Peter talks about a wife's pure conduct, what does he mean to be pure? He means abstain from sin. Live in purity before the Lord. Even when that purity puts you at odds with your husband. He says, no, 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 no. That's not an excuse. When I say be subject, it doesn't mean even if he tells you to sin. Be subject and live in purity. So submission does not mean following your husband into sin. And fifth, it needs to be said that submission is not enduring abuse. Friends, abuse is a horrific distortion of God's good design. And we just need to be crystal clear that is not what submission is. And if you are here, and if you are being abused, please take steps to be safe and know that you can talk to someone in the church and we are here to help you. You will never be told to just submit to an abusive husband. We will help you because that is the way God designed it. Okay, I know that's a lot, 
But that's an overview of what submission is not. So we're still left with the question, what is it then? What does it mean to be subject to your husbands? Here's my stab at a definition. Submission is when a wife joyfully, eagerly, and voluntarily recognizes her husband's authority and places herself under his leadership. It means rather than trying to steal his role as the head of the home, she supports his role in any way that she can. She encourages him and trusts him to lead. And her general posture, there's that word again, her general posture toward her husband is to happily follow him in his leadership even when it may not be the way she would choose. Again, I'm not saying even when it's sin, but she may think, no, there's a better way to do this. I, I, would, I would do it that way. Even then, she is to happily follow him in his leadership. And notice I said she does this voluntarily. And this is another pointer here to how Peter's being revolutionary. Just like slaves last week, wives were also not typically addressed in this kind of literature. All the literature of the day was written to men, to husbands, to governors, to masters. But Peter here gives these wives dignity by addressing them, saying, hey, I know you're out there, and because you're equals in the body of Christ, I'm going to talk to you. And not only am I going to talk to you, I'm going to call you, wives, to hear God's word for yourself and respond voluntarily in obedience. He, he's implying, I know that you can choose obedience, wives. You can think this through. You have a mind to hear and understand what God's word is. And you have a will you can choose to obey. And that would have been radical for the day. Now, two other quick things about submission. First, I want you to notice that it's specific. The command is for wives to be subject to your own husbands. It does not say women be subject to men, but wives submit to your own husbands. It's limited and specific to how men and women live out their roles in marriage. Second thing I want to make sure we see is this calling for wives to submit is not simply cultural. If you hear people say that they try to dismiss the idea of roles in the Bible as being culturally bound, do not listen. This call is both rooted in creation and expressed in redemption. When God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam first to be the head, the Bible tells us. He then made Eve from Adam and for Adam to be his helper in the mission that God had given them. We also see Adam's headship and his naming of Eve, which implied his authority, as well as in the responsibility that Adam bore when they sinned. When they sinned, though it was Eve who took the first steps, who was it that God came looking for in the garden? It was Adam. He was the one held primarily accountable. And so in creation, we see this order of husband as head and wife submitting. But that's not the only place we see it. We also see it expressed in redemption. Ephesians 5 tells us that the roles in marriage are meant to illustrate the roles of Jesus and his bride, the church. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's drawing a connection, a comparison. And he goes on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So the submission of wives to husbands is not a temporary cultural idea. That is one of those truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. Right there. And the submission that Peter calls for here, it's also not contingent on how deserving you think your husband is. He does not say, wives, submit to your husbands as long as he earns it. Or as long as he's worthy of it. Repeatedly in the Bible, we see that husbands and wives are each responsible for what God calls them to do, regardless of how their spouse acts. So last week, Peter told servants they are to submit not just to the good and gentle, right? But also to the unjust, the crooked. And similarly here, he says, wives, you're to submit to your husbands even if they don't obey the word. So he's not saying be subject, wives, as long as your husband is an upstanding member of the church who teaches Sunday school and is a godly man. He's painting these kind of worst case scenarios, saying if you've got a cruel master of slaves, that doesn't get you off the hook. Like you're still to submit to them. And wives, even if your husband's not a Christian, even if he thinks you're, you're ridiculous for following Jesus, be subject to your husbands. And here, Peter told them that they are to do this for a specific purpose. Do you see that there? The reason that they are to be submissive, even if their husbands don't obey the word, is to influence those unbelieving husbands to see the beauty of the gospel and the way they live their life. It says, so that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean the wife never talks about Jesus. He's not saying, like, do not say a peep about who Jesus is or about the gospel. What it does mean is that this wife doesn't nag her husband about it. That she's not badgering her unbelieving husband. Of like, why don't you think more seriously about God? When are you going to get things together? Why don't you come to church with me? When are you going to start? Like, don't you know the kids? We need to do it for the kids. He says, no, 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 no. That can actually be counterproductive to winning him to the gospel. Instead, she is to conduct herself in the fear of the Lord and in purity. She would show how the gospel has changed her. In fact, do you see down there where it says the husband would see her respectful and pure conduct? That word for seeing that, it's a word that was used for spectators at an event. Like you go to a football game, you would see in this way. You would be watching something unfold in front of you. So what Peter's telling these wives, he's saying, hey, listen, Christian wife, your unbelieving husband has a front row seat to watch your life. There is nowhere in the world he's going to see more upfront, impersonal, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like when Jesus grabs a hold of somebody and transforms them from the inside out? So what is it he's seeing when he watches you? He says, when you submit to your husband in the fear of the Lord, it displays the beauty of the gospel to him. And I would say, just a word to those of you who are married to Christian husbands, I think the same principle actually applies. Now, while your husband may not need to be one to the gospel, he may already be one, but you can still certainly influence and encourage him in his own walk with the Lord when he sees your respectful and pure conduct modeled in submission. It's a way of showing him the beauty of the gospel as well. And this idea of beauty is exactly where Peter goes Next, look at verse 3. Here in verse 3, we see the beauty of submission. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So now Peter does something pretty, pretty clear here. He sets up a stark contrast in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he's telling wives, this is what real beauty is not. He says, no, don't, no, no, don't go there. And then in verse 4, he says, this is what real beauty is. Okay, so what, is, what, does, he tell, what does he tell us here? In verse 3, he says real beauty is not something external. He says it's not about how you do your hair. It's not about wearing expensive jewelry or about having just the right clothes. Now, we need to be clear. Some people have taken this verse and just run with it saying like it's wrong for a Christian woman to ever wear jewelry or to ever braid her hair. That, that is ridiculous and that is not what it says. Because if you actually translate it literally, what it would say is the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing of clothes. So if it forbids the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, it also forbids the wearing of clothes. Are you with me? That is not what the Bible is teaching. Okay, we're not, that's, please, this is going to go on the internet. And I do not ever want people to come back to our church saying, I heard what you said about wearing clothes. Okay, okay, good. You guys are with me. I can tell now. So that's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying that's not where beauty is to be found. Don't look to those things, wives, and say, what will make me beautiful? He says, it's not those things. There's something wrong with them, but that's not where beauty is found. Where is true beauty found? Peter says it's internal. It's the hidden person of the heart. And this inner beauty, he says, is characterized by a gentle and quiet spirit. What's interesting, though, is that before... May, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the, that phrase, gentle and quiet spirit. And some of you may bristle and say, I don't know if I'm that kind of woman. Well, let me just be clear. This gentleness, though, is not something that's unique to women. It's actually one of the most talked about qualities of a Christian in the New Testament. Did you realize this? I'll give you just a handful. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, same word here, gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Galatians 5 lists this gentleness as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 4 says all Christians are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. And we could go way further with that. But not only that, not only are there all these references, Jesus used this same word to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 when he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So what I want you to see is this gentleness is not particularly feminine. It's particularly Christian. Similarly, the word quiet is also used elsewhere in the New Testament for all Christians. 1 Timothy 2.2 tells us that we should pray so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. 1 Thessalonians 4 says we are to aspire to live quietly. This quietness doesn't have to do with the absence of speech. It's not saying that like we should all be monastic and nobody talks. We've taken a vow of silence. Instead, this kind of quiet means peaceful, calm, free from conflict and controversy. It means having a heart and a spirit that willingly and gladly submits to the authority of God-ordained leaders. 
It means not having a heart that's critical and constantly disputing and stirring up strife. Now, I point all that out because what I want you to see is that having a gentle and quiet spirit is not unique to women. It's a calling for all of us as followers of Jesus. However, Peter here says wives are especially called to adorn themselves with this gentleness and quietness in their submission to their husbands as a way of showing forth the beauty of the gospel to a watching world. And Peter shows us two ways that this adornment, this putting on, adornment just means like, what do, you, what do you put on to try to show the beauty you have? You put on a necklace, you're adorning your necklace to say like, look at this. this. This points out, it draws attention to something. So Peter says, hey, when you put on this adornment of a gentle and quiet spirit, he says, that's far better than the external adornment in verse 3. Two ways he says it's far better. First, notice that word imperishable. Peter loves that word in this letter. I don't know if, you, if that sounded familiar. And that's what I love about Peter. Peter is not interested in some short-lived, temporary, just put a piece of duct tape on it, see how long it lasts. He says, no, no, no. I want to know what will last. You want to tell me about an inheritance? I don't want temporary pleasures. You tell me about an imperishable inheritance. I don't want to just know the latest buzz teaching. I want to be born again through through the living and abiding word, the imperishable word of God. So here he says, hey, you want beauty that lasts, wives? You don't want just some temporary fix? You want, you want imperishable beauty? Don't look to that other stuff. Hair changes colors. Sorry, ladies. Changes colors, thins out. The best hairstyles need to be redone. Jewelry gets lost, gets broken, gets faded. Clothes, they shrink, they get stains, they rip. That beauty does not last. But a gentle and quiet spirit, that's imperishable. The second way Peter says this beauty is better is when you consider who values it. Peter looks at that first stuff and says, yeah, okay, sure. Maybe the world does think hair, jewelry, and clothes are really valuable. If you go to the store, you'll find out how much they value it when you look at the price tags on it, right? If you want to get some of these fancy hairdos that they were getting, you'd go to the salon and you'd be like, that costs how much? You go to the store to get these really nice, trendy new clothes and you'd be like, wow. The jewelry, whew. But God is unimpressed with them. He looks at that and says, yeah, okay. But what catches God's eye and what he says, wow is when he sees a wife's gentle and quiet spirit as she submits to her husband, Peter says, God looks at that and says, now that is precious. That is valuable to me, God says. So the beauty of submission is found in a gentle and quiet spirit. And that beauty is better because it's imperishable and because it's precious in God's sight. That's the beauty of submission. Now, Peter wants to, to bolster and support his argument by giving, he says, let me give you a couple examples of submission. So look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter says, okay, why should wives adorn themselves with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? 
Because that's how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Now, most likely, the holy women Peter has in mind here, they would include Sarah, who he's going to mention in a second. And it probably was also Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, kind of the matriarchs. You've got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's probably got those women in mind here. And what he says characterized these women. When you think about these women, the thing he said characterized them was they hoped in God. I mean, what a way to be known. He says, these women, the holy women of old, they hoped in God. What does that mean? It means they trusted him. They believed his promises. They entrusted themselves to him, relying on him to care for them, saying, God, I'm putting myself in your hands. And how did they show that? If that's what their hope in God was, how would they express this hope in God practically in the day-to-day life? By submitting to their husbands. You see that? They demonstrated their hope in God by following the leadership of their husbands. It's not that they were hoping in their husbands, as though if, if I'm going to have a good life, it all depends on this guy, on how smart he is, how, how good at making money he is, on what good decisions, what a good father. I'm not putting my hope in him. He says, no, no, I'm going to submit to this weak, fallen, fragile guy because my hope is in God. I rely on him to care for me. Peter says that's how they adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then Peter zooms in and he points specifically to the example of Sarah obeying Abraham. And he tells wives, you are her daughters. So we hear the phrase all the time in the New Testament, sons of Abraham, right? Children of Abraham. This is not saying something different. He's just coming at it from a different way. He's saying, yeah, in the same way, you're also in that line, women, wives, if you do two things. First, if you do good. Now, does that sound familiar? I sure hope so, because Peter keeps banging this drum, do good, do good, do good, and submit, even when it's hard. And then the second thing he tells them is, if you don't fear anything, that's frightening. I love this verse because it acknowledges that there are things in life that are in fact frightening. It doesn't say like, no, 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 you just got to see them rightly. They're not really scary. He says, they are frightening, but you don't have to fear them. Why don't we have to fear the things that are frightening? Because we fear God. And he will never leave us or forsake us. He is guarding us by his power. He will not turn away from doing good to us because he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So when we put all these pieces together in verses 1 to 6, Peter's painted a picture for us. What does this picture of a godly wife look like? She submits to her husband As she walks in the fear of the Lord and in purity. She shows her beauty through a gentle and quiet spirit that's unafraid of scary things. As she hopes in God and does good. And the last thing I want to say about that is I sincerely thank God that we have wives like that in this church. I thank him most of all that one of them is mine. But I also thank him that This is not a foreign concept to this room. And I praise God that that they exist, and I pray that God will cause their number to increase. So that's what he says to wives. That brings us finally to husbands. Now, Peter doesn't say as much here to husbands, but again, it's actually significant that he addresses them at all. 
Did you notice that in all the other relationships that he's covered, he didn't address the one in authority? There's no instructions given to governors. No instructions given to masters. So it's noteworthy here that Peter wants husbands to hear what their role looks like in showing the beauty of exile marriages. He's saying, oh, I, I got to fill you in too, husbands. Like, you got to get this. So what is it we've got to get? What does Peter have to say to husbands? Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So first, I want you to notice what Peter does not say. Notice there is absolutely no word given to husbands about make sure your wives submit. Husbands, enforce order. That is not what it says, and that is not the responsibility of husbands. Husbands are not to enforce their wives' submission. Instead, they are to entice her submission. They are to be the kind of husband that she should gladly want to submit to. And Peter gives us two specific things husbands are to do to that end. First, he says, husbands, know your wife. Know her. He calls husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, or literally, according to knowledge. So in other words, husbands, that means you need to get to know your wife. You need to study her. You need to ask her questions. Observe her. Oftentimes we view like, well, that's, that's what you do when you're dating, right? In fact, that's a term we often say like, oh, we're just getting to know each other, which means we're just dating, or maybe not even that yet. But Peter's saying, no, 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 the getting to know each other is not the precursor to the relationship. That is the relationship. So too often we think, okay, well, I'll get to know her while we're dating. And I know enough, okay, I'm going to ask her to marry me. I'll get to know her a little better, but now we got rings on, I know it all. I've got her figured out. If you think that's true, ask your wife. Man, all the ladies are laughing. That's, I wonder why that is. Peter says, no, 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 no. Husbands, you are to know your wives and live according to that knowledge. And not just live according to that knowledge, not just be informed by it, but love her according to that knowledge. Know what she likes and what she doesn't like, what she's afraid of, what she wants, what she desires, what's she good at, what's she not good at. Know those things and let that shape the way you live with your wife. Second, husbands, honor your wife. And Peter points out two ways that we are to honor our wives. First, he says, honor her because of her physical differences. See that? He says, show honor to her as a woman, as the weaker vessel. Now, when it says weaker, it doesn't mean weaker in intelligence or character or competency. It means physically weaker. Because it's an inescapable truth that in general, God made men stronger than women in general. Is there a woman who's stronger than a man? Yes. But as a general rule, men by and large are made stronger than women by and large. And God says here, husbands, you are to honor your wife in that difference. That's not an accident or a mistake. He says, I set it up that way. And part of it is, it's an opportunity for you, husband, to honor your wife in that difference. You might be stronger, but you're called to use your strength to help your wife and not to harm her. 
You are to use your strength to lift her up and not put her down. Your strength is meant by God to be an opportunity to serve her. So Peter says, honor her for the way God made her physically different from you. But second, honor her for how God has made her spiritually equal to you. You see it? Physically different, spiritually equal. Because not only is she equally created in the image of God, in Christ she is also a co-heir with you of the grace of life. In other words, she has that same inheritance being kept for her. She's been born again to that same new life, that same living hope, and she's waiting for that same grace to be brought to her at the revelation of Jesus Christ as you are. So honor your wife. And notice, there's a purpose. What does he say? So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is incredible. And I hope you don't just fly past this because this shows how seriously God takes the treatment of his daughters. He says, husbands, if you fail to treat your wife the way God calls you to, it will impede your relationship with him. God doesn't just say, look, you got to get things right with your wife. You and me, we're still good, but you got to work things. He says, no, no, no. He says, you got to get that right or we're not right. He says, it will actually hinder your prayers. This isn't the only place in the Bible. We don't have time to go to others, but there's, the Bible says there's ways we can live as followers of Jesus that actually hinders, obstructs, causes a problem in our communication with God. And so here, Peter's zooming in on one, saying, in marriage, husbands, you want to have unhindered prayer? You want to make sure that God is hearing and responding the way you want him to? Know your wife. Honor your wife. So let me close. Let me, this is a lot of stuff this morning. So let me pull it together. Let me close with some bad news and some good news. First, wives. Bad news is you will fail in your submission. Only Jesus has been or will be perfectly submissive. He always did the will of his Father. The good news, though, wives, is you can look to Jesus. You can look to him because even though you will fail as a bride and sin against God and your husband, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to seek and save a sinful bride. He purposefully, knowingly set his love, not on a perfect wife, but on a very flawed wife, and then he bore her sin in her place. He cleansed her and is making her beautiful. And though his bride is sinful, he is gentle and he is merciful. He's always ready to forgive. Husbands, you too will fail. You will fail to love your wife the way you should. You will fail because there's been only one husband who knows his bride perfectly, who honors her by using his strength to serve her in her weakness and who honors her by giving himself to make her his co-heir. And that husband isn't you. Jesus is the perfect groom. But the good news is that he has given himself up for his bride. He's given himself up, husbands, for you, for all your sins, including your sins in marriage. They are covered by his blood so that when you fail and you sin against God and against your wife, look to Jesus. He is is praying for you 
And because he loves his bride perfectly, his prayers will not be hindered. This, friends, is the beauty of exile marriage. It's meant to look different. It's meant to feel different than the marriages around us because it's better and it's more beautiful. So may God give us grace to both have and support these kind of marriages in our church. Would you pray with me? Father, there's a lot here. And God, I pray that you would use your word this morning to help foster these kind of marriages. God, we need your help. We are not strong enough in, our, in ourselves. We are prone to choose our own ways of doing things, both as husbands and as wives. Lord, I pray for the marriages that exist here, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them grace to live this out well. I pray for the marriages that do not yet exist here. I pray that you would prepare those men and women, even those boys and girls, to one day live out this kind of marriage. And I pray for those who are not married or who are no longer married and don't foresee that. God, I pray that they would delight still in your design for marriage. They would pray for marriages and encourage them I pray that there would be older women who train the younger women to live this out the way Titus instructs. I pray that you would make us a people that better reflects the beautiful picture of Christ and his church by the way husbands and wives love each other. Thank you that we have a savior. Thank you that he has not only showed us how we ought to live, but he's died because we failed to do it. And now he's given us his spirit to empower us to walk in his ways. So would you help us to do that this week? We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.